Now, for those of you that don't know me well, my wife, Casey, and I have been married for 22 years this summer, and we have four amazing kids, so I want to introduce you to them real quick. So Jude is in uh, the orange plaid over here. He is 16 and a sophomore. Ben is in the red plaid over there. He is a freshman. Uh, Braun is in the green plaid. He'll be 13 this summer, and I'm wearing blue plaid in the back. We love plaid in our house. We've got all the shades of plaid, apparently. And uh, my daughter, Kate, will be 10 next month. Now, we have been parents for 16 years. And parenting is a little challenging. Now, I want you to hear me say this. I am so proud of who these guys are becoming in Christ and the way that God has blessed our lives with them. But if you've been a parent, you know that parenting can be a little challenging. And so every day that we might have that like, oh, it feels like we're figuring it out. We're doing it well. There's 29 other days that month where we're waiting for somebody to show up at the door and be like, we're here to get your parenting license. We're going to have to revoke that. Like you've, you can't do that anymore, right? Because if you're a parent or a grandparent, you just know that parenting is hard. It's difficult. They don't tell you what you're doing when you leave the hospital, right? But over the last 16 years, there's been one thing that my wife and I have, we've been kind of committed to helping our kids see and experience for themselves. Because if they can understand this one thing, we're pretty confident that everything else will fall into place. Now, I'm gonna tell you and show you what it is, and I'm sure many of you are on the same path that we are, but over the last 16 years, we've accumulated several of these, okay? These are just several of the different children's Bibles that we have in our home. And here's why this is so important to us. Casey and I know this in our own lives. We, we believe that God's word reveals to us who God is and what he is like and why he has sent his son Jesus here, and how we can be redeemed and saved in our relationship with God through a faith in Jesus in Jesus alone. And so for the last 16 years, of all the things that we're trying to teach our kids, we're just saying, just trust God at his word. Get to know him so you can follow him and you can obey him. Now, over the course of time, those Bibles have, they've changed a little bit. When, when they were young, we had like the big picture Bible, right? Where there's more picture than there are words. And you just point and you're like, this is who this is. And this is what they did. And they're like, when can I have a snack soon, right? But, but you kind of walk him through this. And then eventually you kind of graduate to something like this, the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have this Bible, you don't have to have a kid or a grandkid to have this Bible. There is excellent theology in this Bible. There's a lot of words in here, but the artwork is really good. This is Jonah getting spit out of the fish. Like this is such a good Bible. Uh, and then recently, a, a new favorite in our home for the last several years has been the Action Bible. It's like a comic book style Bible. I was reading out of this with my daughter last week. And uh, I mean, it's just like you would imagine. It's comic book, great pictures. David cuts off Goliath's head in this Bible, and it's awesome. He's holding, he's like, look what I did, everybody. So like, there's this. My, my boys now use um, student and adult Bibles. They're studying God's word. Now, I want you to know, we haven't done this perfectly. It's not like we're reading the word with our kids every day the way that we probably should. But over 16 years, we continue to want to expose them to God's word so they can know who God is, so they can know what God is like why he sent Jesus, and how we can know God personally through a relationship with him. Now today, we're going to meet a man named Stephen in the New Testament book of Acts, and he is going to be put on trial for his faith. And all he's going to do is he's going to slide one of these guys off the shelf and say, hey, let me tell you what I believe. He's going to cover some of the most basic children's stories and say, let me piece these things together 
so you can see and understand who Jesus is for yourself. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn right now to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We started into Acts 6 last week. We're going to end up in Acts chapter 7 today. If you're new or this is your first time, we started into this year-long study of the book of Acts back in February. And every week we're reading and studying through a chapter together every week. And today, guys, Acts chapter 7 is long. So just bear with me. We should be out of here by three o'clock. We'll be out of here in time for the end of the first round of basketball games. I promise, okay? Now in Acts chapter six last week, we met this guy named Stephen. And there was a problem in the city of Jerusalem with widows not being fed. Like all the widows weren't getting food. And so the people of the church came to the leaders of the church and said, we've got a problem in the church. And the leaders of the church looked back to the people of the church and said, hey, you can solve this problem. Choose seven people from among you who are full of spirit and wisdom, and they can figure this out. And so they did. The people of the church were empowered. They chose seven people. Stephen is one of those seven. And remember, his job was to help feed widows. Well, here's what we read about him in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. What was his job? He was a food service worker that did his job for God so well that he began to perform miracles. And here's, I think, what we can learn from this. When your faith is in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and he gives you gifts and talents and abilities that you never knew that you had. And he wants to use those gifts and talents and abilities to, to fulfill a job or a role to build up the church and to advance his kingdom outside of these walls, okay? So whatever gift God has given you, just do what Stephen did. Leverage it to help people see and experience the love of Jesus here and out there. If you're not serving, we'd love to help you find a place to serve. If you're passionate about something in the community, let us know. We'd love to partner with you because we believe this is what God has called the church to do. Now, if you keep reading, you'll discover that not everybody loved how Stephen was using his gift and telling people about Jesus. So this is what happens in verse 12. This angry crowd of people stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like a Jewish re religious ruling body. They produced false witnesses who lied and testified that said, this fellow Stephen never stopped speaking. Now pay attention, against this holy place and against the law. This is gonna be a theme that's gonna come up all throughout Acts chapter seven. So what is this holy place? Well, they're referring to the temple. Everybody say temple with me. Temple. One more time. Say it out loud. Temple. The temple was the visual representation of God's presence with the people. So this holy place and then the law. Everybody say law. 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 Very good. The law is the law of Moses. This is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and 600 other laws at Mount Sinai where he said, these are the laws that are going to govern my people. These are the laws that they had known for generations. And so... This group of religious leaders, they come and they say, this man, Stephen, is speaking against this holy place, the temple, and the law of Moses. Look at verse 14. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Where's this place? The temple. You guys are good. And the customs Moses handed down to us, also known as the law, right? In their mind, Stephen and the followers of Jesus had come to dismantle everything that they believe to be true about who God is and what he is like. Look at Acts chapter seven, verse one. Then 
the high priest asks Stephen, are these charges true? Now, the high priest, this is important, was a man named Caiaphas. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he was the same high priest that condemned Jesus to death. So Stephen is standing before, as a follower of Jesus, is standing before the man who condemned Jesus to death along with the group of people that condemned Jesus to death. Now, I think to say that the deck was stacked against him is an understatement. He's being accused of these things, but it doesn't really seem to faze him because he just launches into his defense. Look at verse two. To this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, hey kids, if you ever get in trouble with your parents or somebody's angry at you, instead of saying, hey, jerk face, try this. Hey, brothers and fathers, my peers and my leaders, show some respect. Stephen's very wise. He's building some common ground and saying, brothers and fathers, let's talk about this. And then look at what he says. The God of glory, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. Now that phrase, God of glory, N.T. Wright points out that it is a very fitting name for God. But here's what's wild. It's only used twice in all of scripture. The first time the God of glory is mentioned is in Psalm 29, which was written about a thousand years before Stephen walked the earth. And then the second time it's mentioned is here in Acts 7 when Stephen refers to the God of glory. So what is Stephen doing? Well, he's building some common ground with these religious leaders. He's saying, brothers and fathers, the God of glory, you know, the God of glory, Yahweh, the God of our people. He revealed himself to our ancestor, Abraham. He's saying, I'm not trying to undo anything. I'm just wanting you to see who God is and what he's like and why Jesus, why he sent Jesus. And look at what he says about Abraham. He says, Abraham, uh, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. He said, leave your country and your people and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Now, if you don't know anything about Abraham's story, here's what you need to know. God appeared to him and said, Abraham, I know that you don't have children. I'm gonna give you a family and I promise I'm gonna give your family a land that will be their inheritance. People are still fighting over this land today. When you turn on the news and you see people fighting in the Middle East, it's over this land that God promised these people. This promise was so important to the people of Israel. But I want you to pay attention to what Stephen says. He says, God spoke to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. He appeared to him in a burning bush and said, leave your country and your people and go to the land that I will show you. Now, here's why this matters. Stephen is saying, let's go back. Guys, let's go back to the basics. You know this story. We all know about Abraham. We know about the promise that God has made to him. So he has their attention. But what's interesting is he says, you're bringing me up on charges of the temple and the law. Stephen says, let's just make it a perfect trifecta. Let's go ahead and talk about the promised land while we're at it. But Stephen just pointed out something really, really, really important. When Abraham revealed, when, when God revealed himself to Abraham, he wasn't in the promised land yet. So here's the point. God revealed himself to Abraham outside of the promised land long before he ever led Abraham into the promised land. Now, why does that matter? Well, we're gonna see this come up over and over and over again in Acts chapter seven, but Stephen is saying, guys, don't get caught up on this. Don't get caught up on this. God can't be confined to a certain place. God can't be confined to his law. God can't be confined to his temple. I want you to see who God is and what he is like and why Jesus has come. And so he launches into the story of 
their, one of their patriarchs, Abraham. This is what he says, verse five. God gave Abraham no inheritance here. Now, where would here be? It would be in the promised land because they were standing in the promised land at this point in time. He says, he didn't even give Abraham enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time, Abraham had no child. Verse eight, then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days later. After his birth later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Now, patriarchs is kind of a big word. What does that mean? Patriarchs is like the founding father, fathers of, of Israel. And so Stephen is saying, pay attention, guys. You know this story. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Can you imagine having 12 sons all dressed in plaid? That'd be a mess, wouldn't it? It's a lot of static electricity flowing around. Well, number 11 of those 12 sons of Jacob's sons is a man named Joseph. Now, if you're a parent, you know it's not good to play favorites, but Jacob apparently didn't know that. And so he played favorites and Joseph was his favorite son. He was number 11 of 12. And how do you think that went over with his older brothers? It did not go over well. Stephen says, check this out. Verse nine, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, their brother, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Now I want you to pay attention to the details. Joseph, his brothers reject him. They leave him for dead. They sell him to be a slave, but we learn that God was with him while he was in Egypt. And God gave him wisdom and God helped him gain uh, goodwill with Pharaoh. And, and God even allowed him to be a ruler over Egypt. And if you keep reading, Stephen just recaps the rest of the story. He says, hey, just in case you don't remember the details, guys, while Joseph is in Egypt, a famine breaks out in the land and his brothers have to leave the promised land to come to Egypt to beg for food. And when Joseph sees his brothers, he realizes, oh, these are my brothers. They left me for dead. I can have them killed. But you know what he does? He forgives them and he showed them grace. His brothers rejected him, left him for dead, but he showed them grace. Now that story should sound familiar. Can you think of anyone else that you might know that was a Hebrew that was rejected by his brothers and who was sentenced to death? Stephen is using the the story of Joseph to say, guys, this is who Jesus is. This is why he has come. Joseph's story is a picture of what God was ultimately going to do through Jesus. He was rejected, but he died for our sins. We, we, we have killed him. You have killed him. But Stephen doesn't stop with Joseph. He continues on to Moses. Now, if you don't know much about Moses's story, several hundred years past, the Israelites are living in Egypt the Pharaoh decides he doesn't like the Israelites anymore. He says, we're gonna kill all the boys. And so Moses' parents had a decision to make. They decide if he stays in our home, he's gonna die. We're going to put him in a basket down the river and hope that he lives. That's, this is his best chance at life. Can you imagine being there as a parent? But as the story goes, Pharaoh's daughter finds this basket, takes this baby up, adopts him, and he lives in the palace for 40 years. 
where he becomes like an Egyptian prince. This is the first 40 years of his life. And then Stephen picks up the rest of Moses' story. When Moses was 40 years old, his back hurt and he got up often in the middle of the night to use the restroom. It doesn't say that. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Listen to this. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Verse 26, the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me the way that you killed that Egyptian yesterday? See, Moses was trying to leverage his position and his power and his authority to help set his brothers and sisters free, but they rejected his leadership. Stephen continues into Moses' story, verse 29. When Moses heard this, he fled into Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 more years had passed, when he's 80 years old, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When Moses saw this, he was amazed at the sight. Now you guys, you guys have heard this story before, right? The burning bush. It's such a famous story. We've seen it illustrated in so many ways. He's saying, guys, you know the story. God revealed himself to Moses to set his people free. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, Moses. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people, the Israelites in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I'm gonna send you back to Egypt. Something interesting about this story. It was true for Abraham. It's, now it's gonna be true. It's true for Joseph. Now it's gonna be true for Moses. Moses was not in the promised land when God said, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. What made the ground holy? It's the fact that God was present there with him. It was true for Abraham. It was true for Joseph. God was with Joseph in Egypt. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. This is a theme that we're gonna see over and over again in Acts 7. You cannot confine God to a place. Verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge over us, Stephen said. He, has sent, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. So just like Joseph, Moses was rejected by his fellow Israelites. They refused to believe that he was their deliverer who came to set them free from slavery. Now you see what Stephen's doing. He's just connecting dots from the Old Testament. Say, guys, these stories are meant to show us that one day someone would come, not just to set us free from slavery, but to see, set us free from the slavery of sin. Now I want you to think about the last argument you were in with someone. You were defending yourself and you knew you had the people on the ropes. And you've got like your one piece of evidence and you're like, here it is, bada bing, bada boom. And you're ready to win the argument. I think this is where Stephen is. He's making this case. They can't argue against it, but he's getting ready to turn up the heat. He's gonna step on their toes and it's gonna get really emotionally charged. Verse 37, this is the Moses, the law of Moses that you all love so much. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. But our ancestors 
You guys know this story, right? He re they refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and they turned back to Egypt. They even did a crazy thing like built a golden cow and they prayed to it. Stephen reminds them, remember Moses predicted that he was gonna send a prophet. Well, that prophet, I hate to tell you, he's Jesus. And in the same way that they rejected Moses, you have now rejected God's promised deliverer and Messiah, who's Jesus. But Stephen's not done. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. Now the tabernacle was a tent that God had commanded the people of Israel, instructed them on how to build it. They could build it and take it down. It was a mobile worship center. So everywhere they traveled on their way to the promised land, the tabernacle went up and would go down because it was God's physical representation of saying, my presence is with you. I want you to know this. You, everywhere you go, I am always with you. But it was always meant to be mobile. Stephen continues in verse 45. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors, after Moses died under Joshua's leadership, they brought the tabernacle with them when they took possession of the promised land as God drove the other people out and it remained in the land until the time of David, the greatest king in Israel's history. And David enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, David's son, who was able to build a house for him. So here's how the story goes. David wants to build a permanent worship structure, but instead his son Solomon builds a brick and mortar worship center for God. And apparently it was beautiful, more stunning than anything we could ever imagine. So much gold. I mean, it was beautiful. People would come from all over to see it. And it seems like a really God-honoring thing to build a brick and mortar structure to worship God. But Stephen says, actually, I've got something I want you to consider. Look at verse 48. Stephen says, however, the Most High, the God of glory, he doesn't live in houses made by human hands. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah, where God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen says, guys, you worship the temple, but you can't confine God to the temple. I mean, that was true for Abraham. It was true for Joseph. It's true for Moses. And then, well, then he says this, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Now, what's interesting about this phrase, stiff-necked people, it's what God said to Moses in Exodus 32 when the Israelites made the golden calf. God refers to the Israelites as stiff-necked people. Stephen is quoting God. And that phrase stiff-necked means you're not willing to bow down to God. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, and now you have betrayed and you have murdered him. And he's referring directly to Jesus. Now, those are strong words. But Stephen's making a point. He says, our ancestors were foolish enough to create an idol of a golden calf and they worshiped it and they were wrong. And he's saying, you have done the same thing with the temple of God. And David Guzik summarizes it like this. He says, they were worshiping the temple of God 
instead of worshiping the God of the temple. And there's a big difference between the two. They were worshiping the temple of God instead of worshiping the God of the temple. And it's so easy for us to read it and think, how dumb, how foolish would you have to be to do that, to make such a mistake? You can't confine God. But do we confine God? Do you ever find yourself just maybe like, oh, I'm gonna give you this much, God. I mean, I know that none of us would ever do this, but do you ever confine God to like a time and a place on a Sunday morning? The whole rest of the week is ours. I'm just gonna give you like this little sliver right here. We can find him on our calendar. If this is the only place that we are studying God's word, if this is the only place we are worshiping him, if this is the only place we are praying with him and having any kind of spiritual conversation, you know what we're doing? We're idolizing the gathering of the church. And the corporate gathering of the church was never meant to be an idol to make us feel good or to check a box. The corporate gathering of the church was meant to be a celebration and an overflow of everything else that we're doing through the week so that when we come together, we celebrate what's being done. We encourage one another. We carry one another's burdens. And I think we've all been guilty of idolizing this. Oh, I'm just gonna confine God to this space, this time, this that's not the way this is meant to be. In fact, Stephen's making a point that when Jesus came, there's a shift that happened. Because through faith in Jesus, the presence of God has come to live in the hearts of humans through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I'm gonna read that again. And I want you to think about this. Through faith in Jesus, the presence of the God of glory has come to live in the hearts of humans, young and old, men and women, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Stephen is saying. Don't worship the temple. Don't make an idol. Because through faith in Jesus, we are meant to be the mobile worship centers that are living on mission every day. It's every story in here. That's what it all leads to. Jesus has come to die for us so that we can be mobile worship units. The whole story of scripture is never God saying, hey, I want you to come over here to me. I need you to come over here to me. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, is that what God did? They hid and God went looking for them. When the Israelites found themselves in slavery, did God stay in the promised land and be like, I see you over there. You'll get here eventually. No, he went to them and provided a deliverer to bring them out. He's done the same thing for us through Jesus. He says, I'm gonna meet you right where you are. And when you put your faith in me, my spirit will live inside of you and I can transform your life. I can do more with your life than you could ever imagine, but it happens through faith in me first. That was Stephen's message and he just used all these familiar stories, but it wasn't well received. Here's how Stephen's life ends. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When was the last time you were persecuted and thought, hey, there you are, Jesus. I see you in the middle of all of this. That's Stephen's response. But look at their response. At this, they covered their ears and they began yelling. They act like a bunch of toddlers. They freak out. And they rush at Stephen, they drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, from this point forward in Acts, this man named Saul is going to become one of the key figures in the whole book. 
because now he's a murderer and persecutor of Christians, but in the chapters to come, he's going to have a face-to-face interaction with Jesus. His name is going to be changed from Saul to Paul. He's going to be the greatest Christian missionary that's ever lived, the greatest church planner that's ever lived, and he wrote the majority of the New Testament. It's a testament of how God can change our lives through faith in him. But did you notice that all the witnesses, they throw their coats at Saul's feet? You know why? Think about this. They were actually, it was their way of like having mobility to throw rocks at Stephen to kill him. This is a brutal, brutal death. Verse 60, I'm sorry, verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Those are the same words that Jesus prayed on the cross. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold these sins against them. The same thing Jesus said when he was dying on the cross and then Stephen fell asleep and died. Now, Stephen's life ends very tragically, but here's what I want you to see. Stephen had learned to mirror his life after Jesus's life. And so if you're like, well, why does Stephen's story matter for me? Well, it matters because he's showing us how to follow Jesus. Our lives should mirror and reflect the example that Jesus has given us. And in the same way that Stephen, in the same way that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive my accusers. Stephen prayed that, we can pray that too. We can be on the lookout and and learn how to follow him and no matter what we face. But there's one other thing that I wanna show you that I think makes this story very applicable for all of us. Now, when Stephen was put on defense, he was accused of speaking against the temple, the law, and then remember, he added in the promised land. The promised land for ancient Israelites was like their inheritance. God had promised it to them. It was was their inheritance from God. The law of Moses was God's holy standard, and they believed that it was possible to measure up to God's standard by just killing enough animals and doing all the things, checking all the boxes. And the temple of God was meant to represent God's presence for them. But in the book of Acts, we see something radical take place. In the book of Acts, we learn in Acts chapter five, remember when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because they lied about the price of the land that they sold? Here's what we learn. Israelites, found faith in Jesus and they were selling their land, their inheritance from God, because all of a sudden they realized my true inheritance is to be a child of God through faith in his son. And what we see in regards to the law of Moses in the gospel and in the book of Acts is that Jesus and Jesus alone has fulfilled the law for us. We cannot do it on our own, but he fulfilled that law. And so through faith in him, his righteousness is credited to us, but it doesn't just take our balance back to zero we receive all the blessings of God for being citizens of heaven. And then in regards to the temple of God, the Israelites viewed the temple as God's place of dwelling. But in the book of Acts, we learn that his dwelling place is right here through faith in him. And so as we wrap up, if you wanna make this personal, here's my invitation for you. I wanna invite you to pray and say, Holy Spirit, Will you show me where I'm idolizing something? What am I putting in front of God? How am I like these religious leaders? What, do I, what am I tempted to put in front of and take my eyes off of you? And I just jotted a few of these. these are, this is not a perfect list. But some of us are more concerned about our citizenship as Americans and our rights and responsibilities. We put that above being a citizen of heaven. And so we just live, we don't live up to the, 
in following Jesus's example. Some of us trust in a political party to get it right instead of trusting that Jesus got it right on our behalf. And you're thinking, well, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it is a bad thing. If, if anything steps in front of him, that's Stephen's whole point. Some of us idolize being here or going through just the religious rituals that we do. And it's not drawing us any closer to him. And so I want you to pray, God, would you show me where those idols are? And would you help me to repent and to trust in what Jesus has done for me? And I don't say that to condemn you. Trust me, I've got my own things to pray through. But he's, he wants to fill us with his spirit to be a mobile worship unit, to live on mission for him so that other people can see and experience the love and the goodness so that when they become a part of a church family like this, they realize I've been set free. I'm part of something much bigger than myself. So I wanna invite you to pray through that or maybe after service, you wanna come forward and Dan and I would love to pray with you and for you through any of those things. But I also wanna speak to those of you that have never verbalized your faith in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus isn't meant to be hidden. Stephen's was not hidden. It is meant to be verbalized. It's meant to be lived out. In about six weeks, we're gonna celebrate baptisms. Baptism is a powerful representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so today you can verbalize your faith in Jesus. You can respond by being baptized. You can become a mobile worship unit with the spirit of God living inside of you. I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna, we're gonna sing a song that kind of spells out what Jesus has come to do for us. And during this song, maybe you need to listen to the words. Or maybe you're gonna sing these words, but as you sing them, I wanna remind you, you're singing to the God of glory. It speaks of who God is, what he's like, why he has sent Jesus and how we are saved through him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. I'm so thankful for this powerful sermon that Stephen prayed or, or taught. And I hope that I have honored you and honored Stephen in re-preaching it today. Would you show us all the idols in our life, all the things that we hold on to, all the things that we put in front of you, and it could be sports, it could be kids, it could be our jobs, it could be so many things. Would you strip away the idols? Help us not to be foolish. Help us to be wise and to worship you and to know you for who you are, to respond to you in faith. And would you help us to rejoice that through faith in Jesus, we are mobile worship units. Would you help us to go into this world to share worship and love for Jesus everywhere we go? Jesus, we love you. We lift our hearts, we lift our voices to you right now. It's in your name that we pray. Would you stand and worship with us?